Well, lovely to be back in Queensland. We were here uh, a couple of weeks ago, beautiful up in Butterham. And Queensland's hot, so I get sweaty, but you know about that. Uh, probably too much information. Well, uh, you know, our culture is changing, and you're probably as much aware of that as I am. And we often hear about living in a post-Christian world. Who's heard that? Right? Uh, maybe some of you. Well, it's out there. And I think it's easy for us to become confused and even to lose heart on these issues. But I want to say to you, we up for our first slide here. Um, it would help if I turned it on, wouldn't it? Boy, we're really doing well this morning. Shall we start that again? Good. Okay. There we go. Good. Now, how many of you have seen a space shuttle in church before? Okay, so this is obviously odd. You're probably wondering where we're going with this. And I know this might sound bizarre and strange to you, but uh, I want to tell you that far from losing heart, the 21st century is probably the most Christian the world has ever seen. Now, that might sound absolutely shocking to you and surprising. Uh, I get to lecture uh, around the world a bit, even in places like China at some of their major universities. And the reason they invite us to come and teach about the Bible is because they know that the Bible is actually what enabled modernity to come to the world. Now, if you could say that University of Queensland, I don't know. Uh, so when I'm talking to these Chinese students at the end, I'll say to them, you know what the Ming Dynasty looks like? You know what modern China looks like? You've heard about the biblical worldview, and their jaws drop when they realize just how profoundly Christian China is, actually. Right? Now, that's going to sound really strange to you, because if we're thinking in terms of honoring Jesus, that's not what happens a lot, right? Uh, if we think in terms of people coming to church, there seems to be declines there, uh, and what people do with their bodies these days is really not the kind of thing that God intended for us. So I get all of that. But actually, the gospel does some other really incredible things that are the foundations of our modern world, right? And one of them is, um, in the ancient world, change was the enemy. If something changed, it couldn't be true. It's the Christians who first begin to talk about change as a positive thing. No one talked about it in that way in antiquity. So if you enjoy your Apple iPhone, or if you still use an Android, we'll pray for you. Uh, but you can actually... You know, you can thank God for that because it's the gospel that opened up the whole language of design and transformation. No one ever talked about innovation in antiquity. That's purely a Christian idea, right? It's phenomenal, okay? And then if that's true, if the world changes, you can't guess in advance what it's going to look like. So philosophy won't help you because that's all to do with what we think is right. But the world is what it is, not what we'd imagine it to be. And that's the gospel. Remember First John? John's writing to me says, that which was from the beginning we have seen and touched and handled. It's the Christians who taught the world you learn about it through what you see and what you touch. That's where modern science comes from. So the notion that Christianity and science are at odds with one another is just bananas. We gave that gift to the world because we said what you see and touch and handle really matters. That's why the Gospels are not philosophy. They're stories about someone you can actually see and hear, right? Now, in a world that's gifted with change, cities can change too. Whereas in antiquity, just the elite families would stay at the top and control everything for generation after generation. In our world, you have no idea where you might end up. That's purely a Christian notion. That's what the gospel gave us. The fact that everyone should be shown dignity. That's a Christian idea. No one in antiquity would have thought that everyone had equal dignity. Only elite males and everybody else didn't really matter. 
Now, we just take that for granted today. The only reason we do that is because the gospel has, in fact, conquered in many, many areas that we don't realize. We recently had a debate about marriage, you might recall. And what was one of the key arguments in that debate? It was all about love, wasn't it? No one in the ancient world would have ever made, ever made an argument on the basis of love. The only reason we do that is because of Jesus, who said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So even the people who are thinking we don't want much to do with Christianity, their argument was based on an argument that only makes sense on the basis of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Now, you'll notice I haven't talked about sin or heaven or hell, and those things are all really important. Right? But you need to understand the gospel is much bigger than that. It was here to make the world a very, very different place, and that's why I've got that image on the screen for you. This is no accident. It's no accident that it happened in the West that was touched first by the gospel. It doesn't mean that white people are cleverer. It just means this story is what unleashes a tremendous creativity. And I, can I suggest to you, if you took the most radical Australian atheists and put them back in the first century, people would think they were Christian if they have this outlook. And I want to suggest to you, too, that you can't live in the modern world without sharing this view of change, the senses, dynamic cities, everyone having it right. It's the gospel's one, folks. I hope you realize that. The early Christians, we're going to look at one of them today, Paul, they hadn't won this battle yet. They lived in a world where all of those things nobody accepted whatsoever. But we're living in a world as a result of their faithfulness that's changed everything. Right? So... You know, our non-Christian neighbours are actually living in a world that's largely Christian. They just don't know the Jesus who gave it to them. Right? Isn't that interesting? So um, a little thing that might help you here. Um, anyone know a bit about England? You know, the old money and the new money? Does that make any sense in the UK setting? Right? So the new money, these are people who have to have the really expensive watches and drive the Maseratis and the Bentleys and all that kind of stuff. But the old money, these are the people that have patches on their patches on their patches and drive a beat-up old Land Rover and, you know, and they have, pardon me, the English teeth, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it's <laughs> and they own half of England. They have nothing to prove to anyone. Yeah. We're the old money. We have nothing to prove to anyone, right? The world you live in is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. I hope you get that, right? It's just, now, that's all I want to say just to kind of put this in context, that we're not just talking about something that's an airy, fairy, Sunday religious thing. We're talking about stuff that changed the world and made it what it is today, right? Now, in that context, central to all of this is a guy called Paul. And I think you can make the case that he unleashed what was probably the most astonishing intellectual revolution in the history of humanity. You might not have associated Paul with that, but this gospel that he preached resulted in the most extraordinary explosion of creativity and flourishing. And here's the amazing thing. We have no idea where this will end. It could be starships on the shores of Sagittarius. Right? That's what this worldview does. Right? Now, central to Paul is Jesus. You can't get Paul without getting Jesus. I was once asked to give a talk on Paul and I spoke on this topic and talked about Jesus. And afterwards, one of my colleagues said to me, but I thought this was meant to be about Paul and you talked about Jesus. And I thought, yeah, well, if you don't get that connection, you don't know Paul, right? Yeah. Uh, Paul is all about Jesus, yeah. isn't he, right? His identity is hidden in Christ. We're going to be looking at a passage from Philippians chapter 3, but I just want to let you know what setting it is that we're dealing with here. Paul's not writing to Jews. 
Right? Philippi is a colony and the people who live there are ex-Roman soldiers. So these are pretty serious people. They probably spent 20 years or more on the vicious northern European front. And anyone seen Gladiator? Right? You can own up in church and you can repent after. <laughs> That'll give you some idea of the kinds of people to whom Paul is writing. Philippians is not written to people like us. It's written to serious customers who've been involved using the short, famous Roman stabbing sword that they got from the Spanish. These are serious people who've been defending the empire's integrity in terribly violent ways in a violent culture, and now they own Jesus as their Lord. That in itself is a bit mind-blowing. So that's the context. Now, I want to read you a couple of verses, or maybe more than a couple, that fit into this, get us where we want to go. Beware of the dogs. When was the last time you heard that in church? (laughs) Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about circumcision. Here's a Pharisee that calls circumcision given by Moses from God, and now he calls it mutilation. What in the world has happened there? It is we who are the circumcision, he says, who worship in the spirit of God. That should be good for us Pentecostals. And who boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in what humans can do. Now, I'm going to do a few little translations along the way, so just bear with me there, right? Even though I too have reason for boasting or for confidence in my human abilities. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the human abilities, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Notice that. Paul did not come to Jesus because he had a guilty conscience or needed his sins to be forgiven. That might be, most of us may have, but that's not Paul. I'm just going to flag that. We'll come back to it. It's just important to hear where Paul's coming from. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a friendship with God that I develop myself that comes from obeying the law. But one that comes through trust in Christ. The friendship with God that's based on trust. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. We'll come back to this, folks, but you need to know there's no resurrection apart from a crucifixion, and that's for us. There's no resurrection apart from actually participating in Jesus' sufferings. Now, we're not used to hearing that, but... Maybe now's the time. And why does he want to do this? If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's where it starts, actually, with Christ taking Paul. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. I love this guy. Just scratch Paul and immediately under the surface lies Jesus. I love that. I just wish people would say that about me and others. It's a beautiful thing. Now, some years ago, I was listening to the BBC. Anyone listen to BBC podcast? Maybe not a couple of you. Uh, there's a great series called In Our Time. Uh, that's Melvin Bragg, who's the host. They have all kinds of interesting topics, history, literature. So if you want kind of a nice adult education session, you can listen to this. And they get three professors from the cream of English universities and they discuss different topics. And on this day, they were discussing Paul, which is interesting. Who, by the way, is actually making a bit of a comeback. They had a conference in Canada, French philosophers, and the subject was Paul. <laughs> About that, right? Uh, they recognised that Paul is an amazingly brilliant guy, actually, and changed the world. Now, we're so used to it, we don't realise, but they got that. So in this little session... Uh, they pretty soon got on the Damascus Road because how can you talk about Paul without, without doing that? And uh, I'm going to embarrass myself because I just can't do the English accent very well. Right? The kind of um, kind of thing that they do so well, <laughs> especially these professors, right? And uh, quite so, quite so, indubitably. But, uh, I don't mean to mock anyone, but I am. Okay? And this chap was saying, well, yes, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people were very sceptical and they sought to explain this away. Paul had some kind of breakdown, uh, maybe mental illness or an hallucination. And then he wanted to say, but actually, we don't believe that anymore. Now I'm listening. In fact, all three of these professors agreed that the only way you can explain Paul is that something like the Damascus Road actually happened. And then he drove off the road. <laughs> this is the BBC, right? I mean, these are three seriously educated people in the best of English, and they're saying, you know what? The only way to get Paul is that what he talks about here actually happened to him. Like, wow. Because if it did, folks, everything is different. If what he encountered on that road actually took place, the whole world has shifted under our feet. I hope you get that. So what I'd like to do in our time together this morning, the time that remains, is to look at four things. I want to put Paul in his place, which doesn't sound like what it sounds like. <laughs> but I'm just trying to locate him in his world so we get what's going on. Then I want to talk about some of the things that happened in that Damascus Road and what they would mean for Jewish people, because Paul was a Jew. And then particularly why it had the impact it had on him, which is why he wrote Philippians 3. It's what happened on the Damascus Road that totally turned him around. And my goal in doing all of this, just to be honest with you, is I want you to become obsessive lovers of Jesus. Right? Put my cards on the table. I want you to love him more than anything else, to devote your life to him, right? that you might be in him and have that hope of the resurrection by fellowshipping with him in his sufferings, right? that you might be part of what really will change the world. All right, so that's my agenda. And you can leave now if you want, but that's where we're going. <laughs> and I happen to have the microphone, except they have the volume up the back, so uh, they can shut me off any time they want. 
So the first question is, who was Paul? Right? What can we say about him? Well, uh, to be honest, for starters, uh, some of us are not quite sure what we think about Paul, right? And particularly some of our women folk, we think that Paul doesn't actually like women very much. Well, can I just say that's about as mistaken as you can get. If you know something about the ancient world, there's no voice in all of antiquity that is so supportive of women as Paul, actually. Right? Now, I'd like to, we could have a whole session on that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, and those two famous texts, often in 1 Corinthians, about the head covering and then 1 Timothy, uh, again, all I can say is I think they have been horrendously misunderstood. Right? They just don't mean what we take them to mean. And it is somewhat wonderful if I can say this. I come from Sydney. If you know a bit about Sydney, there's a certain denomination down there that's well known for having certain attitudes. And it's just eye-watering, eye-wateringly delightful to be able to point out that the first person who ever explained the letter of Romans, right? Romans, that's Paul, right? <laughs> to a congregation was a woman. <laughs> okay. um, hey, listen, I'm Pentecostal. I know how many of our churches were founded by women, right? It's not the gender thing. This is the spirit thing, right? So when Paul's writing Romans in Corinth, he's doing it with a woman called Phoebe who leads the house church in Cancray. She's going to be the letter carrier. And what letter carriers did is they sat with people when they wrote their letters so that when the letter was read out, she could explain what was going on. I mean, that is just marvellous, right? Especially given that some of the people who love Romans really have no time for women anywhere. Don't you think that's wonderfully ironic? You can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> I think it's gorgeous. Okay. Um, it's precisely because Paul gives women such extraordinary freedom and unparalleled authority that he has to reign them in at times. Because like all of us, when we get this stuff for the first time, we tend to go a bit too far. Right? So the women thing. No, great friend of women. Others of us think he's a bit too arrogant, a bit cranky, and has too high a view of himself. Right? Ever come across that? Maybe. But I want to say two things here if I can. Uh, first of all, as I would remind my Canadian friends, Paul is Jewish. So Canadians are very busy trying to be the nicest people in the world. Ask them and they'll tell you. Uh, that's not Paul. I read a book recently on decision-making theory written by two Israeli scholars who worked in California. And they said, in California, everyone's opinion matters. Uh, not so in Jerusalem. Right? Uh, you have to earn the right to have an opinion in Jerusalem. Right? So I sometimes um, do offend my students in New Testament introduction by, you know, they want to write essays on this kind of stuff. And I say, no, you're going to write them on this. And, well, why can't I? And my response is, you don't know enough yet to have an opinion. <laughs> right? I mean, would you go to a dentist who hadn't been properly trained? Okay. But it's okay to do that with the Bible. Hmm? Teeth are more important. Come on, give me a break. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, and we often see him when his tail feathers are up fighting for the integrity of his churches and the gospel, right? And he, you know, all along the line, he's having to deal with these imposters, self righteous prats. Yes, that is a technical term, right? Uh, crooks and a sordid range of ne'er-do-wells who are coming to his churches causing all kinds of trouble. Right? So he's up to his eyeballs in a bun fight, and we tend to see him having to do that. But you only have to read 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, or this letter to see what an extraordinary human being Paul actually is. He will freely allow himself to look like a fool in the eyes of the world if that brings life to people. 
In that world, to work with your hands was to put yourself beneath contempt. And Paul gladly did that so people might get the gospel for free. Now think about that for a model of leadership. You read what he went through. You'd meet Paul. He's got a battered body. It's not the years, it's the mileage. And you read that list of things, right? Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, hungry, in exposure to all kinds of weather. This guy's body would be really badly knocked about. And when he says, for he let go everything for Jesus, he's not kidding. That's not some pious comment on a Sunday morning that makes us feel good. He really has, right? He let that all go for the sake of Jesus. I love the guy for that reason. He bleeds, he weeps. It's amazing in 2 Corinthians when he starts, he doesn't start with his great success stories. You ever notice that? And this is Corinth where people love great ones. What he starts with is the God who comforts us in all our sufferings. That's where he starts. He starts with his weakness. And when he talks about his sufferings, it's not to say I'm such a great guy so that we can comfort you in your sufferings. No one in antiquity does that. They're all about, I'm the supreme leader, right? I'm walled about, I'm protected, I'm aloof. I don't actually can, you know, consult with many people because I know everything. The better a man is, the more he deserves. You can tell who's the best because they have most. And Paul just totally repudiates all of that. We haven't come to lord it over your faith. We are fellow workers with you for your joy. He's a stunning, stunning person. Right? Well, right? So you can tell, I'm pretty impressed with Paul. Uh, and in fact, I teach this class, Intro to New Testament, and I want to do that every year because it reminds me of what I believe and why. So I want to do that every year. But two things tend to happen in those classes, just to report back, is that first of all, people feel like they meet Jesus for the first time. I remember teaching one class in Canada and we had uh, a professor emeritus from the University of British Columbia sitting in the front row we get into the Jesus thing. She's sitting with just tears streaming down her face. That is so, I love it when people get emotional about Jesus. I just love it, right? Beautiful. Um, you do understand, right? I can't resurrect you. Right? I can't be with the Spirit. Right? My blessing's not worth anything. The person you need to know is Jesus, right? He can resurrect you. He can fill you with the Spirit. And that's my only concern this morning is to talk about him. And Paul had met him, right? And that's the second thing people pick up. They just get another perspective on Paul. They realise this guy is an amazing, amazing person. Well, you probably haven't heard this in your university, but uh, he's unquestionably one of the most influential figures in history because of the impacts we've just spoken about. Okay, so just some questions about Paul to get the scene working for us. Now, one of the first things to talk about as we come to Paul is to pick up on his two names. What are his two names? You might know this. They're right up there for you, so it's a trick question. Not. Okay. Saul and Paul. Now, when I was growing up, I was taught that Paul was Saul before he was a Christian and Paul afterwards. I won't ask for a show of hands, not to embarrass anybody. Um, nice try, but no cigar. Saul is his Jewish name and Paul is his Greek name. And all of his letters are in Greek, so he signs them Paul. That when he's in Israel, he calls himself Saul. It's like John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, I would argue. John is his Jewish name, but when you're out there in the Greek world, it's Mark. So I have a number of students who come from mainland China, and they're very kind people, and they actually choose an English name to save everyone being embarrassed when I try to murder their Chinese name, right? Just, so they very kindly say, just call me Stephen. 
And I said, what's your real name? And I said, okay, I'll just go with Stephen. <laughs> and that's what you're finding here. Right? The two names have to do with two cultural backgrounds. Now, why is that important? Because Paul lives in two worlds. That's what makes him the, the great messenger of the gospel that he can be. He knows the, the world from which the gospel came and he knows the world into which the gospel is going. If you read your New Testament carefully, you'll discover that the people who mostly take the gospel forward are those kinds of people. The Jerusalem church, heartland Judaism, actually becomes more conservative and falls off into heresy. Right? Just kind of drops off and disappears. But the leading edge of the gospel is all those people who live in two cultures, like Antioch, Ephesus, right? They're the ones who are doing this because they know both worlds. And can I just say as a word of advice, if I can here in this group, watch the people who have a foot in both worlds because they're your best vehicles of evangelism. What happened in my situation early on is our church is about this narrow. Everyone else is listening to the Beatles. We listen to the Blue Ridge Boys, right? And I kind of get what's going on, but what it meant was I had no way to talk to non-Christians because I simply didn't know where to begin in their world. And it's no wonder we kind of ended up shrinking, it seems to me. But that's not Stephen, Stephanos. That's a Greek name. Right? These are people who are in both worlds. That's what enables them to have this tremendous ability. They know Israel's story, but can speak it into that world. So this is Paul. Um, he knows the pagan Greek world really, really well. He spent his early years in Tarsus. Make sure I'm on the right side here. Yes, very good. Thank you. And uh, it happened to be one of the leading cities in the empire, actually. Now, you might have heard of Athens and Alexandria. You probably have. But in the first century, they were kind of backwaters. Alexandria had had its day. Athens was going to resurge again probably in the second century. But in the first century, a lot of the great philosophers came from Paul's town. So he knows this stuff. Now, that makes him very different from Jesus. And the first point is this. Paul's an urban guy. Jesus grew up in a small town at the back of Burke. Right? That's kind of the analogy. Rarely went to cities, went to Jerusalem, but rarely to other big cities after that. Right? Very much a country lad. Paul, on the other hand, urban, knows Greco-Roman cities. He's a Roman citizen, which is the best passport in the empire. That's going to help his relationship with these ex-Roman soldiers. He can travel around with that. His family is also very unlike that of Jesus. Jesus' dad was a carpenter. And in those days, there were questions about carpenters because they had to keep moving around in order to support their family. You know, and you're just not sure about that. But Paul's family is probably pretty well-to-do, and it seems like they actually knew the leading families of Asia, which is what we call modern-day Turkey. He's a very different kind of guy. He's familiar with Greek customs and philosophy. That's why on Mars healing Acts, he can talk about what the Stoics and Epicureans believe. Some of their leading thinkers were trained in the very same city that he grew up in. Now, can I say, it's really important to be able to do that, folks, because one of the first signs that people know we care about them is we know about their culture. We've taken the time to learn about them. And when Paul begins on Mars Hill, the first thing he does is applaud some of the good things he can see about that culture, even if he ultimately says no to it. Now, he can only do that because he's been in both worlds. Here I'm going on this, right? Don't become a monocultural bubble. That's the surest thing that will stop you actually being the leaven of the kingdom of God in the world. Right? 
Now, I know there are issues you have to watch, but actually the truth of the matter is we should be less worried about being infected because we are actually the infectors. We're the ones with the Holy Spirit, right? He can speak Greek fluently, right? unlike Jesus, um, who knew a little Greek, the terrible joke, sorry, not the guy who runs a local fish and chip shop. Everyone had to know some Greek, right, in the first century. That was kind of Greek as a second language. But Paul's fluent. And when he quotes the scriptures, it's often the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Well, the point of all of this, he lived out as a Jew. He knows all about the difficulties of being God's people living against the grain in a thoroughly pagan world. He knows all about that. That's why he's ideal when it comes to establishing these new Christian churches. He knows exactly the kinds of issues that these new converts are going to have to face when they give up living that pagan way and enter now into the life of Jesus. He knows all about this. And, of course, he's right into Philippi, and there are so few Jews in Philippi, there's not even a synagogue. So, but he's the ideal guy to do this. Well, all of that's really important, but um, the thing that really defines Paul is his Jewishness. And you'll notice in the text we just looked at, the early part of that, he's addressing people who seem to think that having this Jewish stance gives them some kind of priority. Because if anyone can boast about his Jewishness, it's Paul. You know, he's born there. He's done that. He didn't just buy one T-shirt. He bought the lot, including the manufacturers as well. So you want to talk about the uber Jew, it's Paul. Now, you might think, why does that matter? Because in our culture, all cultures are equal. That's not the biblical view. Sorry about that. If it's true that the only one true God is the God of Israel, if that's the case, then everything else is vaporware and smoke and mirrors. So if you really care about reality, then that means for Paul really caring about his Jewishness. That's why he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And what do we got up here? So the first thing we notice is he kept the law blamelessly. And he says this looking back as a Christian. Now that might cause a few little ripples, right? Because you're all thinking, but what about Isaiah? Or we like sheep have gone astray. Yeah, but Isaiah's writing to people 800 years before Paul. (laughs) Got that? You can't just pick up something that Isaiah was saying to one group and apply it to somebody 800 years later. That's not going to wash, right? Paul actually means what he says. You've got to get that, right? Paul doesn't come to Jesus because of a guilty conscience. He's kept the law blamelessly. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He didn't come to Jesus to have his sins forgiven. That's not what happens. You're going to see this in just a moment. He was also trained under one of the greatest Jerusalem teachers of their day, Gamaliel. And what's interesting about this is Paul is not a shortcuts guy. And can I just say to you, if you know people who take shortcuts for their education, don't trust them. Because if they lack integrity there, they're sure enough going to lack integrity somewhere else. You want to watch that behaviour. If you're thinking about leadership, and you make sure the people you're looking at, they don't cut corners. If they cut corners there, they're going to do it somewhere else. That's not Paul. He's so keen about this, he left Tarsus to study in Jerusalem with the very, very best. And can I say that to you, say it to us as a movement? We don't, we don't honour anyone by doing, pardon me, crappy PhDs. We really care about this. Get the best you can. 
if the gospel matters, it matters that much. Right? So give it your very, very best, I would say. And, um, it's not because I have a self-interest in this, but um, if I can say, I think if that's one thing our movement lacks is we don't really have great Bible teachers. Sorry about that. We've got some good things to say about leadership, but people don't tend to come to us when they want difficult things explained in Scripture. I'd like to see that change. Paul could be a great Bible teacher and be filled with the Spirit. Why do you have to choose? Why can't you have both? As Gordon Fee said, why can't you be a scholar and on fire at the same time? Wouldn't that be lovely? Absolutely. Right? So he knows his Scriptures amazingly well. If you ever tried to read Romans 9 through 11, every couple of verses he's alluding to three or four pieces of Scripture. It's just the way he weaves this together. He's just on song. It's stunning, right? It's stratospheric to watch him. Once he gets it's just all the scripture that comes out of him. And the way it's woven is just stunning, actually. He knows his Bible unbelievably well. How well do we know ours? Right. Uh, in fact, can I say this? I think one of the things that many of us notice is how biblically illiterate many Christians are these days. And uh, I have to say that's partly my fault because how often when we preach do we actually spend time in the Scriptures? And how much time do we spend telling stories about this or that or something else? The stories are great, folks, but they won't resurrect you from the dead. The stories are great, but they won't fill you with the Spirit. <laughs> There's one guy you need to be focusing on, and that's Jesus. He's the one who will transform you, and that's what the Scriptures are about. So I am a Scripture nut, right? Uh, and I owe that to the Pentecostal church. You inbred this love in me, okay? <laughs> so the Scriptures really do matter. Uh, and it's because of that that he's deeply invested in the Pharisees because they cared about this stuff and all their oral traditions. Uh, you remember the hand-washing stuff in the Gospels? That's all their oral. You know, Paul's deeply into that. We also hear in Galatians he's at the forefront of his generation in terms of knowledge and zeal, and there's no reason to doubt this. His knowledge in the New Testament is phenomenal. In fact, many people suggest if he'd not become a Christian... You'd be reading about Rabbi Saul in the Talmud and the Mishnah, the Sefta Gemara's, right? All this great kind of Jewish literature where the rabbis are writing their stuff down. Paul would be there. And I sometimes wonder, actually, if, um, I don't know, maybe in AD 60 or something, there was uh, a gathering of, you know, a reunion of the AD 35 Rabbi Gamaliel's graduation class in Jerusalem. And they all get together and say, so what are you up to? Well, and, you know, Rabbi Jokhanan says, well, now I'm actually on the Sanhedrin and my job is to run the committee on dealing with the contravirus. Or, no, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, and someone else says, well, I have my new rabbinic school we've just opened and we have 4,000 students. That's great. And, oh, and what happened to Saul? Oh, that's a bit of a sad story, really. You know, because he, uh, he was the brightest of light, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, well, he, um, he kind of got messed up with this Jesus thing and uh, he just lost it all. In fact, I just heard recently he was executed. What a tragedy. Imagine that conversation in Jerusalem. When he says he lost everything for Jesus, he's not kidding. He means it. All that stuff that gave him status, he was willing to let go. So it's for all of these reasons he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is their highest legal body. So he's a serious player. See that? He's one of the elite. He has one of the best educations you can get. He's got all the connections. He's the real deal Jew and he knows both worlds. Now, what gives this all its edge, I think, is he really is a deeply committed Jew. And for him, what he's waiting for is the coming of the kingdom of God. Christians did not invent the second coming. That's what they're waiting for. 
They had Yahweh turn up at the Exodus. They got into exile. They come back. The rebuilt temple did not have the presence. They know something's missing. They're waiting for the second coming of Yahweh. That's what they're waiting for. That's what the language kingdom of God is all about. And Paul looks at Israel and he knows the country's in a mess. He knows that. And not least because most of the people who live in the land don't actually observe Torah like they should. And that's not to say that Paul kept it sinlessly. That's not what it means when he, when he said, I kept the law blamelessly. It's not the same thing. The law has provision for sin. They're called offerings. And as long as you stay within the covenant, then you can actually deal with that sin. So it's not saying Paul was perfect. What he's saying is, here were the regulations and I lived within them. And I know that when God turns up, he's going to call me his friend. That's really important to get this right, folks. He's not like some of us where we come to God with our list of good things and say, now look, I helped someone across the road the other day and I, someone gave me too much change. I gave them a bit back. and done. So I really am a nice person. You should like me. That's kind of legalism. That's not what's going on with Paul. He knows what God wants him to do and he's done it. So when he boasts, he's not boasting in himself, he's boasting in God's faithfulness. He knows that God will keep his word. Paul has done what God's asked him to do. So when God turns up, he knows that God will say to him, you, Saul, are my friend. That's what he means by justified. It's really important to get this right, folks. Righteousness and justification in the first century for Jewish people is primarily relational. That's why I translated that friendship with God. If you turn it into legal stuff, there's no relationship between the judge and the person in the dock. That's not biblical righteousness. Right? And Abraham trusted God and God said, that makes him my friend. That's why he's God's friend. You want to become God's friend? Just trust him. That's all that's being asked of you. Just trust him. Right? Not do the Torah, just trust him. Right? Very powerful idea, I think, to get our heads around. Now, you can understand why then, as a Jewish person, if you know something about their history, right, they're waiting for two things, resurrection and spirit. Christians did not invent the resurrection and Christians did not invent the coming of the spirit. That's all Jewish stuff. That's what they're waiting for. He's waiting for that too. Okay? So he's quite convinced that when that great day comes, the resurrection, he's going to participate in that. God's going to fill him with his spirit. That's really what he's waiting for. That's why he's so dead keen about the Torah. I need to do what God wants me to do because I want to be a part of this. Now you can understand why the Jesus thing is such a problem. And it is a problem for Paul. Why is that? First of all, he can show you scripture and verse where God himself says, anyone who's hung upon a tree is cursed by God. You show the chapter and the verse where it says that. And here are these Christians worshipping this guy. How offensive can that be? This is blasphemous. How can you worship someone that God himself has cursed? That's what's, you see what's driving Paul is a deep, deep love of God. That's the scary thing, isn't it? Because you'll meet some people with a deep, deep love of God who'll end up thinking that they're doing God's will by behaving ways that actually end up being demonic. That's a scary thought, isn't it? There are some forms of holiness that end up sliding over into the demonic because they're not in step with what God's doing. Hmm. Now, not only that, Jesus led people astray. He seemed to be a little easy on Sabbath keeping. Right? That's a problem because the Torah really matters. Okay? 
And then thirdly, Paul knows that if Israel continues to be disobedient because of God's mercy, he won't turn up. Because they understand if God turns up and his people are not obedient, that's just going to be bad news for everyone. Right? And God doesn't want to do that. So he's going to hold back on his coming until people get a bit more ready for him to turn up. That's what Paul's on about. That's what John the Baptist is partly on about too. So the point is here you can see that Paul is persecuting Christians not because he's an ugly piece of work. No, no, no. It's because he's deeply committed to God, his honour and his scriptures. That's what's motivating him. That's why he has no trouble presiding over Stephen Stoning. This guy's a complete threat to God's honour, his integrity, and where the Torah is meant to be taking us. But the problem is it doesn't stop there. Now it starts spreading. This gangrene even makes it into Damascus. So now the Jewish leadership have a problem. You can imagine they get together. What are we going to do now, right? This thing's now outside Judea. It's into the Greek-speaking world. How are we going to deal with this? Gee, let me think about this. We need someone who can speak Greek fluently. Someone who understands Greek culture, who's brilliant in debate, who's a leading expert in Jewish law and in Jewish tradition, someone who's deeply zealous and observant, perhaps even a member of our highest council. My goodness, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> who's it going to be? Saul, of course. But he's the ideal guy for this. You can see him. Off he goes now, just, you know, zealous, on his way, doing God's will, right? and just thrilled to be defending God's honour and glory. And uh, little does he know that his life's about to be turned upside down, and not just his life, the entire world. Right? And he doesn't know that's about to happen. What an amazing thought. He's going down the road, and you know the movie, and you're waiting for the moment. He has no idea what's about to happen. It's wonderful. And this is so important, folks, that Luke tells us this story three times in the book of Acts, because you won't get Paul without getting this. Now, what's the first thing that happens? He's surrounded by light. Now, remember, Paul's Jewish. Who do you know who lives in light? Yeah, good. Yahweh. You can actually say that. It's not a trick question. So you want to try that together? Who lives in light? God, Yahweh, right? Yeah, actually. So um, what do you think is going through Paul's mind? You think about him, right? Look at, look at all the ducks he's got in a row, all the prizes on his mantelpiece. And here he is defending God's honour, and he's on his way, and suddenly light shines about him. What do you think he's thinking? I reckon, at last you've noticed. Yeah. Right? Right? For sure. I mean, he's got no reason to ever think that what he's doing is not in keeping with God's will. This is his moment of indication. Right? All that hard work, all those years of learning languages to three o'clock in the morning, all that kind of stuff. Now, at last, God has said, hey, my boy. <laughs> this, this is Yahweh appearing. Right? It's incredible. And then he hears Saul. Saul, well, he knows his scriptures. Remember Samuel when Eli is this corrupt old man and God's no longer speaking to him? And then, you know, Samuel gets woken up and three times. Why does that happen? That's happening for Eli's benefit. Because Eli thinks that God's no longer speaking. No, God's no longer speaking to him. Now he's speaking to Samuel. That's the point of that story. Those three calls are for Eli's benefit. Mate, it's not that I've stopped speaking. I'm just not speaking to you anymore. Whoa, right? So here's Paul in this same context of these, you know, blasphemous Christians. Saul, Saul he's just ready to say, Speak, Lord, your servant heareth, right? 
And then what he, before he can even get that out, what do you hear? Why do you persecute me? I mean, can you imagine for a second what that does for him? What? What? Whatever the Hebrew for that is. Ma, ma. Okay. I'm not persecuting you. I'm just persecuting those rotten Christians. Oh, my goodness. Now, you're all such wonderful, lovely Christian people that I couldn't say here what I would say if I was talking to non-Christian students at a uni. Um, so I'll give you the, the kind of modified version. Uh, this is one of the world's truly great oh-smelly-stuff moments. And I'm sorry about that. I'm not mean to offend people, but, you know, when you really do get gobsmacked by something, right, you don't tend to say, oh, that's interesting. Right? It's like, <laughs> okay, forget that. If that's offensive, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But I'm just trying to give you the sense of just how it just would have hit him in the face, this thing, like, what, 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 what? Right? Now, I think Paul already guesses the answer here because he's a sharp guy, but he says, who are you, Lord? And boy, is he telling the truth because it's truly the Lord. It's Yahweh who dwells in light. Who do you think you're worshipping in Jesus? Right? Some little mascot that sits on the mantelpiece that you occasionally go to when things are going wrong. Is that who this is? Your ticket to heaven. Uh, the guy that means you never have to suffer again. You hold three, own three BMWs, all the suits you ever wanted, and your stocks are always going to go up, 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 and you'll never get the virus. Right? Is that the kind of God you come to? Or have you actually come to who Jesus really is? Yahweh, the creator of the entire world himself. Right? That's going to change things, isn't it? When he speaks, we don't question if he says jump, the only question is how often and how high. Right? You understand now why Paul is like he is? He's encountered the resurrected Jesus. Whoa. Now, of course, the staggering thing about that is you know, Jesus is Yahweh among us. Oh, my goodness. Then what comes out? Well, hang on. There was a curse there. Someone's curse had to be there on the cross. And he realizes it wasn't Jesus. It was all of us. Right? It was our curse that he was carrying. You might want to think a little bit about that. We, we often sing songs, you know, that one where the father turns his face away. Who ever told you God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross? Where do the scriptures say that? God knows that Jesus is faithful. He knows that he's actually the first true Israel son. He knows that. And in fact, the blackness in Amos, we're told, is a sign of grieving of a son, who's, a father who's lost his only son. You just be careful what you sing. You want to make sure it's actually in line with what the scripture tells us. Right? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a lot more than that, right? Well, the resurrection's already happened as well. He's waiting for the resurrection and it's happened in Jesus. It's already broken in. Imagine that. He's been waiting for this. He's done all this stuff and all it's done is make him God's enemy. Wow. You see how important Jesus is in all of this? He's the center of everything. And the Torah had its purpose, but by the time Jesus comes, if you insist on living in Torah, you're actually making God your enemy. Right? That's why Paul says to the Galatians, you get involved in circumcision or Sabbath keeping or food laws. You're now related to God on the basis of Torah and you have to do it all. You don't just get to pick. You've got to do all 100, 613 commandments, not just the ones you like. And by the way, you get a bit cut off, you've actually cut yourself off from Jesus. 
And who's saying this? A guy who knows this stuff backwards. You can't do both. It's either trust in Jesus or it's trying to do the other stuff, but you can't do both. Oh, potent, isn't it? And then what happens? Now he can't see. He's blind. He knows his scriptures and he knows them backwards. And what does he know in this song, right? In this song, sorry, I was just referring to the person up there, beg your pardon. Okay. Um, maybe I should watch the time. Uh, Psalm 115, Psalm 135. The gods of the nations have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, and so are all those who worship them. When Paul struck blind, what's that telling him? He's an idolater. He's turned the Torah into an idol, and that's what blinded him to what God was doing in Jesus. My goodness, right? Now, what does he get then? He said, uh, mercy, I need to move, obviously. And he gives a gospel to the Gentiles. That's part of his call as well. And notice that involves suffering. He doesn't escape that. Okay? And then that explains what goes on after this. He goes to Damascus. He's praying and fasting because he's done everything. And all it did was actually make him opposed to God's will. There's nothing else he can do. Ananias goes to the Starbucks in Damascus the Holy Spirit says, Saul's in town. Did he go pray for him? Saul, you're kidding, huh? This guy's like he's going to kill me. Let's check the use by date in my hummus next time before I eat it. Right? And uh, now he goes and the world changes, right? And then out of that, we get this amazing series of uh, statements, which I won't go over again. But now I think you can see why Paul is utterly devoted to Jesus. He's met him. He knows who he is, right? the resurrected Christ. So now what does this mean for us? Well, folks, can I just ask you, how central is Jesus to your life? Is he really the center of everything? I sometimes meet some students who feel like their Christian life, Christian life is ordinary and average and nothing much is going on. And I want to say to them, it might just be because you haven't yet bet your life on Jesus. The ancients knew this. The ancient Stoics knew you could never know what it meant to be a Stoic unless you bet your whole life on being a Stoic. You'll never know what marriage is until you're married and you know you can't get out of it. A marriage where there's always the option to leave your partner, that is not a marriage. A marriage is where you know this is for life and you're going to have to work through it no matter what. Right? The gospel's the same, folks. If you haven't jumped out of the plane without a parachute, then that might just explain where your Christian life's a bit because you haven't bet your life on him yet. And that's what Paul's done. All these things he's been willing to let go. Right. So you've got your wonderful car and house. When you're five minutes from your last breath on earth, will that help you? Ask that Mercedes-Benz to resurrect you from the dead. Ask that investment portfolio. Ask that PhD to do this. Not mean to be provocative, but, but ask being on the, you know, the national executive. None of that will do anything for us in the end, only Christ.